You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor of Hill City Church, and I am so excited to be back preaching this week. I've actually had four weeks off as uh, my wife had our third daughter, and so our family was growing. I was on paternity leave, and I actually miss it when I'm not preaching. I know a number of pastors that preaching is just kind of one of their things they have to do, and whenever they get a week off, they're so glad about it. And for me, I actually miss it, and I'm so excited when I come back to preach, especially to preach the final teaching in our series, Citizens of Heaven. But the reality is, just because I like preaching doesn't mean that I always like the message that I am talking about. And today, it's that way. The message that I'm preaching today is a very difficult one. And it's not a difficult one because the passage is complicated and theologically difficult to explain or to understand. It's not even a difficult passage because I expect it to be a hot topic issue and extremely controversial. The passage we're going through today, Jesus's eighth beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, is difficult because it's personally challenging. This is a difficult teaching that is really going uh, to challenge you and, and just know if it challenges you and convicts you, I'm right there alongside you. It's one of the most uh, countercultural, anti-American beatitudes. And if you've joined us for any of these weeks in our series, Citizens of Heaven, you will know that these kingdom characteristics of God's people that Jesus calls us to, they're, they're countercultural and they're difficult for us to live out in our life. But number eight, the eighth beatitude that Jesus closes the list with is perhaps the most difficult to live out. So let's go ahead and jump into our text from Matthew 5, starting in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Jesus tells us we should be rejoicing when we experience suffering. And this is the opposite of how we tend to think about suffering. Usually when we experience suffering, when someone slanders us, when they revile us or they hate us, or maybe we're persecuted for our faith, what we tend to think is something's wrong. Did I do something wrong? Did God do something wrong? Like what is going on? But what Jesus says is he says, in fact, when we're experiencing persecution and resistance for our faith, it's actually because things have gone the right way for us. So what does this mean? How can we understand what it means to live out being persecuted? Well, the word persecution is the Greek word dioko, and it means to run after, to chase, to drive away, or as it's translated here, to persecute. But you can see the idea. It's the idea of someone is pursuing you, or they're coming after you. Specifically, they're coming after you because of your faith. They want to seek you harm. So here's maybe a good definition of persecution. It's any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus. 
It's when we experience hostility from our non-Christian neighbors and friends, from the world, maybe even in some places from the government because we are Christians. And Jesus, he says, we should expect this kind of treatment from the world. It should be no surprise to us when we encounter suffering and trials for our faith. Teacher Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, says this. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called on to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. And I just want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe the words of Jesus, that that it's actually a joy to experience persecution and suffering? Honestly, I don't know if we do. One of our values in America is comfort, living a comfortable and a pleasant and a happy life. But here what Jesus promises us is he promises that we will experience hardship. Well, a couple of clarifications before we kind of break down what does it mean for us to live out a life where we experience persecution. Clarification number one is that America is increasingly secular. So American culture is an increasingly secular culture, but not a persecuted country. And it's really important that we don't mix up those things. Today, when we talk about persecution, we're going to be using a little bit more broad uh, form of that word because the culture that we live in is not a persecuted Culture, although some people talk about America that way. See, persecution of Christians in other parts of the world is actually at near genocide level. It is one of those humanitarian issues of our time, and it's it's very much not in vogue and not popular to talk about that in America. But the reality is, uh, around the world, the church is being persecuted. There's an organization called Open Doors, and they put out a world watch list of the top 50 most hostile countries to Christianity. Here's the world watch list, and the top three are countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Here's just some numbers to put this in perspective for you. There are 340 million Christians around the world living in places that experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. That means one in eight, one in eight Christians around the world faces persecution. This is the numbers just from last year from a study by Open Doors. They found 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. And again, these numbers are just what's documented by this organization. The numbers are likely much higher than this. Uh, There were 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings that were attacked or closed. And and, and then there's 4,277 believers who were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. So the reality is, when we talk about the persecution and the hostility we face, in America, likely what that means is more of an ideological persecution. Uh, that, That Christians, in an increasingly secular culture, don't have to worry about their lives. We don't have to worry about our church being shut down, right? Anything like that. What we deal with is a lot more ideological persecution, being canceled, you know, people uh, getting in arguments with us, uh, cyberbullying and shame on social media, that kind of stuff. The reality is there are Christians around the world who are losing their lives. About a dozen Christians die every single day for their faith. So what does that mean for us? 
In the American church, what that means is one of our practices today is simply to pray for persecuted Christians. And I mean persecuted in the proper sense. They live in a hostile country where the government even or other majority groups are actually trying to kill them, hurt them, imprison them, shut down their churches. And so for us, we can actually pray for persecuted Christians around the world. We can pray for boldness. We can pray for strength. We can pray for safety. We can pray for freedom for those who are in prison. And ultimately, we can pray that the gospel would continue to move forward even in hostile environments. That's our first clarification. When we're talking about persecution, it's important to understand that America is not a persecuted country, although we are an increasingly secular country. The second clarification is what we're seeking here, the, the, the kingdom value we're seeking is not persecution. We seek righteousness, not persecution. That's what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted, period. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're mean about their faith uh, or because they're being jerks or because they're disrespectful or because maybe even they're unwise in the way that they live out their faith. What does Jesus say? He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And specifically, he clarifies in verse 11, on account of me. So not just any righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, one of the apostles, almost quotes this beatitude as he writes a letter to the church in 1 Peter 4, 14 through 15. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then he, he goes on to make the same clarification. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So on the one hand, what Peter is saying, he's saying if you're suffering, it's actually a sign that the spirit of God is resting on you. That you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're living out your faith, you're active in your faith. But then he, he clarifies, he says, but if you're suffering because you did something wrong because you're an evildoer or a meddler, what, you, you know, if you're suffering because you're just doing evil things, maybe that's just the consequence of your evil things that you did. Or, or, or maybe it's not that you're suffering for your faith, maybe you're suffering for the wrong reasons. R. Kent Hughes says, sadly, Christians are very often persecuted not for their Christianity, but for lack of it. Sometimes they are rejected simply because they have unpleasing personalities. They are rude, insensitive, thoughtless, or piously obnoxious. And, and we need to take this, this clarification really seriously. I remember growing up in my hometown in Fairbanks, Alaska, there was a church that had one of those digital uh, scrolling building signs, and they would put you know, their service times, the temperature, the time, and then they would put messages on there. And unfortunately, this church was notorious for putting hateful messaging, hateful little one-liners, anti, uh, anti-homosexual, anti-Islam, right? just, just picking different groups and, and being known more for what they're against than what they're for, and they were just notorious in the town for that. And groups like that, and sometimes even individuals like that, who feel like they're doing that for God, when they experience opposition, maybe even from other Christians, opposition in in a relationship, or maybe even opposition from the government at times, they might say, see, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's not the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Those people are being, being, receiving opposition as a consequence for sometimes even their evil actions that they're doing, you know, in the name of God, where, where in fact that is not the way that Jesus taught us to be on mission 
for the gospel. We are persecuted for righteousness and on account of Jesus. And what that really means is righteousness is more than just, you know, being good or being nice. It, 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 you know, people, if, we, if Christians were just good and nice, like, that's actually culturally celebrated. You know, people want us to be nice. They want us to be, you know, kind and good people. And, and not to downplay those things. Those are fruits of the Spirit, kindness and goodness. But righteousness has a lot more to do with living your life as a whole oriented towards God and his will. And what that means is it means we believe and we live out the kingdom ethics put forth by the teachings of Jesus and of the Bible. So what that means is we're going to stand up for certain things. We're, we're going to believe certain things that put us at odds with both political parties. We're, we're going to believe in, in a historic view of sexuality. We're going to stand up for, for not killing children and boarding children. We're going to stand up for, for caring for the orphan and the widow and the refugee that, that God calls us to welcome and to care for. There are certain things ethically we're going to believe and we're going to stand up for, and we're also going to live out righteousness in a different level. Peer pressure doesn't go away when, when you move beyond your teenage years. Peer pressure is alive and well as adults, and this is going to mean we're going to go against the grain in our personal lives and in the way that we follow Jesus day in and day out. So here's what this means for us. Here's our main point for today. If they don't like Jesus, they won't like me. If they don't like Jesus, they won't like me. If someone can't, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people sit, love, you know, Jesus, but when they say they love Jesus, they love the idea that they have of Jesus. They don't actually know who Jesus is. They think of Jesus as just a nice guy or just a teacher. I'm talking about the historical Jesus, the Jesus who said, I am the exclusive way, the truth, and the life. I'm talking about Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God. Uh, and, and so if somebody is absolutely can't stand Jesus, they won't like me either because I stand with Jesus, because my life is patterned and modeled after Jesus Christ. And when people see Christians, they should see Jesus. They should see his teachings. And Jesus agreed with this. If they don't like Jesus, they won't like me. Jesus said something very similar to this in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus says to us, the world is going to hate him and a slave, a servant, is not greater than his master. And, and so what did they do to Jesus? They crucified him. They crucified him. They beat him. They mocked him. They killed him. When Jesus tells us what it's like to follow him, he tells us it's like taking up a cross and following him. And so for us, we should expect no better treatment than the world, those who are hostile in the world, gave to Jesus. Well, why is this? I mean, those of us who love Jesus might be left with that question, well, why do people hate Jesus? We love Jesus. Jesus is great. He saves us from our sins. And the reason why people hate Jesus so much is even the very existence of, of a, a holy, just God confronts us with our own shortcomings. Let's just look, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 3. You remember John chapter 3? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right? Uh, in John 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a very religious man, a man named Nicodemus. And shortly after he says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light 
has come into the world, speaking of himself as the light, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And I believe that is the reason why followers of Jesus and Jesus Christ himself receive so much opposition from the way of the world. Because we as humans, we like to think well of ourselves. We like to think well of ourselves. We hate saying sorry. We hate saying that we're wrong, right? And so what happens is even very religious people, the Pharisees, very religious people, who felt like they were right with God. They, you know, they had done all this good stuff. They were very self-righteous and pious. When they're actually face-to-face with Jesus, the Son of God, he is the true light who has come into the world. You know, he is the picture of perfection. What that does is it's like a mirror. The light of the world is like a mirror that confronts us to the darkness that is still at work in our own lives in the depths of our souls, in our hearts, in our actions, in our thoughts even, sometimes. And we are aware that we are sinners in need of grace. And that is not a comfortable place to be. And in that moment, we have two different responses. We can humble ourselves and repent and turn towards God, or we can hate the light. It's like this moment where maybe, you know, it's early in the morning and you're cuddled up in bed and uh, maybe think back to when you're a kid and your parent switches on the light and it's just blinding, right? And you, you, you want to pull back the covers. That's what happens when the Jesus, the true light of the world, comes into our lives. He exposes the darkness that is still there. And in a shocking I would say in a shocking turn of events, in Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses after the Beatitudes, in verse 14, this is what Jesus says. Not only that he is the light of the world, look at what he says in Matthew 5, 14. You, speaking of his followers, his disciples, for us, the church, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, this Bible verse is very significant to us as a church because it's where we get our name from. Hill City Church, it comes directly out of Matthew 5, 14, a city set on a hill. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying that for those followers of him, for someone who is a disciple of Jesus, what happens is when God forgives our sins and cleanses our life, what happens is he actually turns us into the light of the world. We now are robed in Christ's righteousness. You know, our own righteousness is like filthy rags, but Christ's righteousness, true righteousness, is now in our lives, and we begin to live our lives differently. And when we do that, and people interact with us who aren't followers of Christ yet, they're going to, like that mirror, it's going to show them their own shortcomings. Not that we live our lives in a judgmental way or in a, you know, we don't want to point out the, the log or the speck in someone else's eye or anything like that, but the reality is when we are saved, we will be robed in Christ's righteousness and, and we're going to have that same kind of uh, resistance from the world that Jesus faced himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, to become like him, we have to become light. That's part of becoming like Christ. We have to become light. And light always exposes darkness. And the darkness, therefore, always hates the light. So you can see it. It's like a simple equation. Jesus is the light of the world. When we become like Christ, when we're saved, we become the light of the world. And the darkness in the world hates the light. So the the darkness in the world is going to hate the church, and it's going to hate Jesus 
as well. So we should not be surprised. In fact, what Jesus says is we should rejoice because it's actually a sign that we are living out our faith and we truly have the light of Christ within us. Don't be surprised if you get canceled. Don't be surprised if, if someone can't understand why you don't you know, fully align with this political party or, or you don't fully agree with them on everything. Don't be surprised if you get yelled at for your faith. Don't be surprised if someone uh, talks poorly about you. Don't be surprised if you even get fired from your job because of your faith. Because in the same way, Christians have been being persecuted for generations. But for us, perhaps the bigger question in our lives, if we're honest, is not so much why am I experiencing persecution for my faith, but maybe this is the bigger question. Why aren't we persecuted? Why aren't we? For many of us, if we were to be honest, maybe at one time or another we've experienced some kind of opposition for our faith. But the reality is, for many of us, maybe we've never experienced opposition in our lives because of our association with Jesus. Once again, R. Kent Hughes says this, We should not be surprised when, perse- when persecution comes, but rather surprised when it does not. Therefore, if the person who claims to follow Christ never experiences any persecution at all, it may be reasonably asked if he really is a Christian. Now, I'm not here to get you to doubt your faith by any means. And yet we can just, we can just wrestle with that tension. There's something off probably in our lives if we live in an increasingly secular hostile to Christianity culture, and we're not experiencing any of that hostility ourselves. We're not experiencing any of that resistance ourselves. In Luke chapter 6, we see kind of a parallel passage to the Beatitudes. Luke 6 is the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. And instead of the list of eight Beatitudes, what Jesus does is he gives a list of four blessings and four Woes. Now, the, the blessing of being persecuted also shows up in Luke chapter 6, and there's a corresponding woe in Luke 6, 26. I want to read it to you. And I think this is really haunting for us to think about. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Jesus is saying to the true prophets, they were persecuted, but to the false prophets, everyone loved them. Everyone loved him. And isn't that true of our picture of the ideal Christian? The ideal Christian is just someone who everybody likes, everybody gets along with. They're really, really nice, you know? They're just celebrated by everyone in culture, inside of the church and outside of the church alike. Once again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that is not Jesus' picture of the ideal Christian. He said this, They did not praise our Lord and will never praise the man who is like him. So if we are indeed like Christ, we're going to suffer like Christ. And I think there's three main reasons why we may not be experiencing the kind of resistance or opposition that maybe God is even calling us to experience. Reason number one is we are too much like the world. We're too much like the world. We tell the same jokes. We watch the same TV shows. We, we really dabble in the same culturally acceptable sins. And we become like a chameleon. Where, wherever the shifting tides of culture go on right and wrong, we just follow suit. And I just want to ask you to, to really wrestle with this question. Do you agree on almost everything as your non-Christian friends? 
When you think about the worldview that your non-Christian friends hold, are you very closely aligned to their worldview, or is it radically different than yours? Because someone who does not have a faith in Jesus and someone who has a deep faith in Jesus should have radically different worldviews. And a church that is too much like the world is robbed completely of its potency. And an individual Christian that looks too much like the world must ask themselves, am I truly a follower of Christ? And if that's you, and maybe you're not actually yet a follower of Jesus, I would just say this to you. Let Jesus save you. Let Jesus be the one who saves you and changes your life. If you're still living in darkness, if there's sin in your life, the reality is if you can be the light of the world. But the only way that you can experience the righteousness of God, you can start living your life the right way, you can be free from sin, you can be forgiven from sin, is because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. The Son of God died for your sin on the cross. He raised to life on the third day, and you can have a victory over sin and death. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to bring you out of darkness and into the kingdom of light where you can experience God's goodness and God's grace. And so today, if that's you, I want to call on you to respond to the good news of the gospel by praying a prayer right now or or maybe even after this teaching, asking God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. I also want to challenge you to respond the way Jesus instructed us to put our faith in him, and that's through the step of baptism. I'm excited. We're doing this massive building renovation, and the baptistry has been under construction, and it is days away from being fully functional and ready to go. And I'm praying that in the coming months, we would see more people respond through baptism right here at the building in the brand new, fully renovated, beautiful baptistry. And so if you have questions about baptism, or if you want to sign up, you can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But for you, maybe you have been saved. You've put your faith in Jesus. You've maybe even been baptized. Well, maybe for you, you're still looking at your life and you're saying, I look a lot like the world. In fact, you're a little worried. I think I look a little too much like the world. Here's the practice for you. Let the Holy Spirit sanctify you. Let the Holy Spirit sanctify you. Jesus doesn't just want to save us from our sins at one point in time. The the process of salvation is really a lifelong process of more and more freedom from sin, more and more victory over sin and temptation. That's this process of sanctification. God sends his Holy Spirit to live within you, and and the way the Holy Spirit does that is by challenging your beliefs Maybe right now you hold some beliefs ethically. You you hold different beliefs that are more influenced by a political party or they're more influenced by your friends or by culture than they are from Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit challenge your beliefs as you read Scripture. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of your behaviors, convict you of the things that you're doing in your life that you know are ungodly. You know those things are wrong. Let the Holy Spirit convict you and bring you to confession and repentance and turn back to God in your life. And for us, we can also let the Holy Spirit empower us. Maybe there's addictive sins, things that you've been fighting for years and you've been kind of fighting on your own as a little bit of like a self-help. And what you need to do is you need to let the Holy Spirit empower you. The power of God lives within you so that you can have freedom over sin and temptation. And another great step for you would be to get in community if you're struggling with sin. The Holy Spirit speaks through Scripture. The Holy Spirit also encourages us and sanctifies us in community. So you can sign up for a life group on our website and allow other believers to be the ones who help the Holy Spirit sanctify you in your life. 
The second reason why we may not be experiencing persecution is not, not that we're too much like the world, but we're too cut off from the world. We are cut off from the world. Uh, this is the idea of a church, and some churches kind of teach this, that we can't be tainted by the unholy world, and so we lock the doors to the church, and we bar the windows. It's the idea of a church that's not a city on a hill. It's a church in a cave. It's isolated. It's apart from, and Jesus didn't call us to stay in safety, although it is a lot safer and for some people more comfortable. He called us to go into all the world to go into all the world. If you think about the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said things like, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus was known consistently as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And if we follow Jesus, he will lead us to the lost. And so the practice for you, if you fit into that category of being too cut off from the world, is to spend time with unbelievers. Spend time with people that you know who don't follow Jesus yet. And, and know that God might use you in those relationships to influence them and to show the light of the world to those people. There are simple ways of engaging with missions simply by, by starting to have lunch with a coworker who you know is hostile to Christianity. Simply by getting to know your neighbors in loving ways, especially around the holidays, bringing Christmas cookies or some of those things just to your neighbors, just to engage with them. Thinking about your family members and your friends who for years you know they haven't known who God is. You have the opportunity, maybe even in deeper conversations, not arguments necessarily, but deeper conversations with those people. And if you don't know anyone in your life, you, you have trouble thinking, listing even a name or two of anyone in your life who doesn't know God, it can be as simple as going to the same coffee shop. We're going to the same gym and finding people in our community just to link up with and get to know who don't know Jesus yet. That's your practice, to spend some more time intentionally with unbelievers. And then the third reason why we may not be experiencing persecution is because we're hiding our faith. We're hiding our faith. This is maybe... I would say the biggest reason for many Christians why we don't experience the kind of resistance or opposition. Uh, we follow Jesus in private, but not in public. You know, when we're at church, when we're at small group, maybe even in our own houses, we follow Jesus. But as soon as we're in the public sphere, we, we kind of keep our faith to ourselves, And we almost justify it in a way. You know, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I, you know, I, want to be, I don't want to be forcing anything down anyone's throat. And we kind of like justify that, like, you know, we're being exactly who we want to be. But I would just ask you the question, are you being who Jesus is calling you to be? He doesn't call us to have a faith that is private. He calls us to a public kind of faith. Once again, in Matthew chapter 5, continuing in verse 15, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Like I said, we are a city on a hill not a church in a cave. And so often in our lives, we have the light of Christ, we have that righteousness, and we also have relationships with non-believers, but when we're around them, we just kind of you know, put that, take that lamp and we just cover it with a bushel. We, we cover it under a basket. We don't shine the light in them, uh, in those situations, those relationships. So here's a practice for you. Openly follow Jesus. Openly follow Jesus. There are too many, especially in America, closeted Christians, Christians who, who, are, who are secret about 
their faith, I would just say openly follow Jesus. Would you be more vocal, maybe even on social media, about your allegiance to Jesus than you are about your allegiance to a political party? Would we just openly follow Jesus? Would you be someone who stands up for the, the kingdom ethics that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, the the kind of ethical stands that Jesus would be taking today. Not these peripheral, hot-button cultural issues that you know are just kind of these side arguments going on in our country right now. Would you be someone who just, when it comes to the way you live your life, if your coworkers, if the people that you're around are doing something that you know is ungodly, would you refrain from that? Would you live your life above reproach? And let those people know why, like, I can't do that because Jesus commands me not to do that. I can't do that out of respect for Jesus, out of, you know, Jesus is Lord of my life. Whatever you need to say in those situations, those are the ways that we can openly follow Jesus. And if we stand true to Jesus and we live out righteousness, what, what, are they, what does Jesus say will happen? People will see that. That's, it, light only makes a difference when it's shining and people can see it. People will see that light and they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. Now, those are three of the reasons I would challenge you. Whichever one of those reasons you relate to the most, take that practice very seriously. And when we do that, what happens is there are hidden blessings, as Jesus says. There are reasons we can actually rejoice when we experience suffering for our faith. In fact, there's three main ones. The first blessing, Jesus says, is great is your reward in heaven. That's the first blessing that is apparent that comes from living this righteous life when we face persecution. The good news is that there, there's a reward in heaven. And think about the, the Christians around the world, especially the ones who are being martyred, killed for their faith. The, the, the martyrs today and the martyrs f- for generations before us. In Revelation, you can see there's a, almost an emphasis that God will avenge the martyrs in Revelation 6. God will wipe away the tears of the martyrs in Revelation 7. And in Revelation 20, it's the martyrs, those who are actually beheaded for their faith, that are sitting on thrones reigning with Christ. The reality is those who are mistreated by this world for their faith will be treated incredibly well by God. It's the suffering, not the successful Christians that will be rewarded the most. And that's that's really kind of anti this, you know, celebrity idea that we have in our minds in America. We tend to think of the celebrity pastors, you know, the New York Times bestselling book writing pastors or the Billy Grahams of the world that will be, you know, they're going to get the the great seats in heaven, the best rewards in heaven. And nothing against Billy Graham, right? I'm all for people being successful and, and, and making a huge impact for the kingdom. But the reality is it's the suffering Servants, not necessarily the successful Christians that will be rewarded the most. You see this when James and John, their mother, in Matthew chapter 20, ask Jesus if they can have the seats to Jesus' right and his left in his kingdom. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And what Jesus means by the cup is he's talking about the cup of suffering the cup of wrath, the, the, the cup of pain and that he is going to experience. And what he's saying is the people who are going to sit next to me, they're the ones who, who aren't just going to be you know, super successful and they got rich because they're Christians and really successful. The people who are sitting next to him in the new heavens and the new earth, they're the ones who are suffering to the same degree. They're the ones who are suffering for their faith. And so the, the reality is we don't go looking for suffering, once again, 
We want to seek righteousness. We don't seek persecution. But we are comforted and we are assured that God notices when suffering finds us. And we experience those things. Even if no one else sees it, God sees those things and he will reward even what is done in secret. The second blessing, second blessing is suffering is a sign of faithfulness. It's a sign of faithfulness. It's not a sign that, that we, we've done something wrong. We didn't follow the plan, right? We didn't follow the formula. It's a sign of faithfulness. It was the false prophets who everyone praised, but the true prophets were persecuted. And we see that when we look back, not just when we look forward at heaven and we see there's this reward, we can look back and we can see the heroes of the faith often were suffering for their faith. You look at the prophets in the Old Testament and you look at the apostles. The early church was heavily persecuted for preaching the gospel. Even in the early chapters of Acts, Peter and John, they they were arrested for preaching the gospel, and then they were beaten, and then they were released. And look at what their response was in Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's an example of someone considering it a blessing. They're, they're rejoicing because they understand it's a sign that they're, they're not, not a sign that they did something wrong. It's a sign they're right on track with what God wants to do through them in his mission to reach the world. And of course, the greatest sign of faithfulness is Jesus being faithful to the Father's will and dying on the cross and suffering in our place. And so if you experience persecution or suffering for your faith, just know it's a sign that God's spirit is resting on you and you are being faithful to God's calling on your life. And then the third blessing is actually that persecution purifies the church. Persecution purifies the church. See, in America, we have categories like nominal Christians or just church attenders, people who are maybe Christian by name. They would check that box on a survey, but they're not really Christians in their lives. They don't really follow Jesus per se, right? And the reality is what persecution does is that the first signs of hardship, nominal Christians leave. They flee. They run away, and it becomes apparent that, you know, they were just in it, you know, for kind of the social club. They were just in it to be known as a Christian, not because of their allegiance to Christ. And what happens is it, it purifies, suffering purifies our faith as individuals, it forces us to, to deal with certain things, and God refines our faith as, as gold is refined through fire, but it also purifies the church. And some of those people kind of leave, and what's left is this faithful remnant. And what God can do with a faithful remnant is always more than what God does through a fearful majority. David Curry, the CEO of Open Doors USA, says this, the numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying. So he's talking, this is the guy who, who's doing all these studies on persecuted countries and all of that sort of stuff. He's like, it should mean, this fierce persecution should mean the church is dying and that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith and turning away from one another, but that's not what's happening. In fact, when you compare the numbers from, from uh, 2019 to 2020 of the number of Christians in these countries, the number of Christians on this world watch list in these you know, hostile countries, it's grown by 46 million Christians in one year. Because what happens is the persecution is refining the church, purifying the church, and people are getting real about their faith. You've got to be real about your faith if you could die for your faith 
tomorrow. And so people are sharing the gospel. They're being vocal. They're not turning away from Jesus. They're realizing that those who deny Jesus, he will deny, but those who proclaim Christ, Christ will proclaim at the second coming. It's like what the early church father Tertullian said. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Roman Empire, they got it wrong. They thought that the more that they oppressed and persecuted the Christians, they could squash the church. But Jesus himself said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so this external persecution, what's going to happen is it's going to purify us. So in our age, I know we have so many people in America, right? You know, it's becoming increasingly secular, and people are asking, is the church done in America? What's going to happen is the church is going to be purified. More resistance, more opposition, more hostility, and that's okay. If they don't like Jesus, they won't like me. Because what Jesus said is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.